insight, innovation, transformation. Welcome to the Change Healthcare Podcast. Welcome back to the Change Healthcare Podcast. I am Genevieve Morris, the Senior Director of Clinical Interoperability Strategy at Change Healthcare. And I'm Robert Connolly, Vice President of Business Development of Provider Networks at Change Healthcare. And this is a second in a series of Let's Talk Interop from a podcast series that we're starting. Uh, in this episode, we'll be discussing the newly released Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, also known as TEFCA for short. We're going to talk about what it is, what it does, and how it might impact nationwide interoperability. Today, we're joined by Paul Wilder, who is the Executive Director of the Commonwealth Alliance. Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself and your personal background, which led you here today. Well, that's a, that's a long story. Um, but the short <laughs> is, uh, Executive Director of Commonwealth, been here for a little over two years, uh, a uh, decade in change in health information exchange and interoperability. So this is kind of the dream job, I guess, for someone like me. This, this is it. Um, have, having a great time. We were really excited about seeing Tefa come, come out. And uh, there's still a lot of things to be answered. But I'm excited to kind of get through that with Genevieve and you all and see if we can make people think a little bit. For sure. So tell us a little bit about what, you know, what is the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, or TEFCA? Uh, it's been a horrible provide... acronym right. <laughs> <laughs> that I blame Congress for still to this day, because it's what they put in there. But uh, Paul, I'll kick off with this. And, and I, you know, people who know me know my background on this and how near and dear to my heart this particular policy is. Um, but at the end of the day, the you know TEFCA is a single agreement as well as accompanying technical specifications and some standard operating procedures that if a bunch of networks, which are going to be called QHIMS, Qualified Health Information Networks, all sign on to and build the technical specs for, they should be able to communicate with each other. And so the goal is really, you know, we've got still in the U.S., what is it, Paul? Like, I mean, we're probably still around like 200 HIEs, right? Like maybe 100 somewhere in there if you count the regional folks, right? Yeah, things that you count as an HIN that coordinate across entities that aren't you know, directly related to each other, that's right. Yeah, so we've got that many <laughs> and there's only like what, like maybe 10 that actually talk to each other, maybe 15 if, if we're lucky um, based on some of the work that came out of Sheik. And so really TEFCA is trying to get those networks to talk to each other so that folks can have some baseline interoperability for high value use cases without having to connect to a whole bunch of different places or build a whole bunch of different fire APIs or custom connections. Um, so that's, you know, I don't know, Paul, if you have other opinions about what TEPCA is, but that's kind of the overview. Yeah, it's funny. I, I don't, uh, when, when I think about TEFCA and define what it is, I don't bring forward the 200 HIE problem, <laughs> but that is definitely a problem. I think of more of even at large scale, uh, the the analogous bad network would be like having cell phones, where if I have AT and T, I can call AT and T people, and Verizon can call Verizon people. But right now, for those two to talk to each other, Verizon and AT and T need to need to make a deal, and that's not helpful, right? You know, you kind of need some ability to take a phone and know that there's any ten digit number you get that supposedly there's another phone that you can call it without checking your contract to see if it works. So this is trying to take that general concept of 
if things are connected, they should all be connected into healthcare and trying to solve that through a common agreement and that common set of technical specifications and standards. Yeah, no, and it's a great analogy, right? And I think I remember this from way back when I did the interoperability roadmap, which has now been many moons since that was done. I did research on um, the cell network because I was like, I feel like I remember a time when you couldn't send text messages between different carriers, right? And so you see like there's been this progression of like you first you couldn't text between each other, then you couldn't send emoticons, right? Then you couldn't send gifts and everything cost you money. And then we got to a point where it was just like totally natural for all of that to connect together. I think that's a perfect analogy for, for what we're trying to accomplish. So Paul, since you're in the real world doing interoperability and you've done cross-network things with, with Commonwealth and Care Quality, thinking about Tefka, you know, there's always good stuff, bad stuff, sometimes ugly stuff <laughs> that, that we don't like in it. Um, so I'm curious for your perspective, you know, what are your top things, like top thing you like about TEFCA, top thing that, you know, you're concerned about and, and maybe will push for change quickly <laughs> as we go through the process? Yeah, I mean, I think from the good is relatively easy, right? Having the entire country covered and making all the on-ramps on the dropability equalized I think is 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 an obvious win, right? We don't have that yet. So then you get to the bad and the ugly. Um, first, and I don't want to you know cause any major consternation amongst people. I don't think we have Tefka yet, right? I don't think we have, you know, I have a common agreement and I have a QN technical framework, which is an acronym of acronyms, which is great, but it um, it's lacking some details, and some of them are pretty pretty darn significant. Um, so I think we're 50% there and I think philosophically all looks good so far, uh, but we do want to see those final documents that are mentioned in those agreements in the QTF and make sure we're not missing something. And some things we're pretty sure what they're going to be and some is not. The ugly, it's not really, really, you think I would just, you know, hammer home that what's missing. The ugly is kind of what's, what's not seen, uh, uh, you ever the analogy like a duck always looks calm above the water and below the water, their legs are going like crazy. Mm -hmm. And they just look like they're floating across the lake. And <laughs> love that one. Yeah, yeah. But underneath in the industry, there's a lot of who's in, who's out. Um, yeah. If you're in, how quickly you're going to get your endpoints to adopt it. What about the things you're already connected to? Because it's disruptive against existing relationships, or yeah. it could be, or it could be an extension of all of them, but that's that's really hard to figure out. And there's also no price attached. So we're not quite sure how much is all gonna cost us when we have investments and things we're already doing. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's really fair one on missing some SOPs, right? And I, I think I tweeted about this two or three weeks ago because you know the exchange purposes are a huge SOP that I think we vitally need so that we can understand what the requirements are because you know at the end of the day, like one of our biggest policy issues, right? It tends to be security, like we abide by different standards and I've got a higher one than you, so we won't talk. And then the other one tends to be on data uses, right? Like that's just, that's where we get hung up as an industry uh, because everyone sort of, you know, is suspect of everyone else who's asking for data. So I, I agree. I think it's, you know, I'm anxiously waiting for those additional SOPs to come out. I have to imagine it'll be the next two months because they want to start signing people up next quarter. Um, I am curious though, you know, you know, we were very happy to see that in the QTF, they adjusted 
you know, some of the language around if you're not going to have a centralized master patient index or record location service, you have to verify that you've that you can meet really strict SLAs on your response times, which I think was really positive. What I was still a little bit concerned about is that it, it still feels like we're not totally addressing the patient matching issue, right, which is, you know, bane of all of our existence at this point. Um, and I, you know, I really appreciate the language they had in there around the demographics that you have to send, the standardization of those demographics, putting in the clause that you can't just, you can't just like not respond and just keep going back and asking for more demographics, right? Because that's just a stalling tactic um, that we've seen in the real world. But it's still like a little bit concerning, you know, where we're going to end up at because, you know, right now within the networks where you've got the mixture of the deterministic and the probabilistic matching and, and there's, you know, those don't necessarily all work to the same degree um, as far as how well they work. I, I'm a little bit concerned that a bunch of that wasn't addressed because I know having sat on care quality work groups that, you know, those issues have come up a ton. Yeah. Um... It's a great point. And for those who are thinking we're talking gibberish, and there might be some people out there who think we are, um, we actually talk gibberish within our, our own spheres. Like I can actually get on a call and debate what deterministic is. Oh gosh. Right. You know, is deterministic a long string match of hard to string together things that are all perfectly equal? Or is it a, a strong identifier presented via passport, driver's license, exact? Mm -hmm. It, you know, there, there, are, there are terms within terms here and the QTF and common agreement actually flat out said, we're not addressing these, right? And, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, without, you know, you, you worked at the ONC and, and you have some homage back to your uh, former emperors, but, you know, I'm quite frankly, I, I've been frustrated by this because I've heard many times from, from ONC people that setting the standard for that matching is outside their purview. And my general response is, if the, if the department or agency that is responsible for health IT standards can set a standard for how we do health IT, who is going to, yeah. right? I, I don't know where it's going to come from. And the market has, um, I don't think, I don't think intentionally, you know, people have differentiated or intermediated, whatever terms you want to use. There's different versions of people thinking they have the best version of something, uh, but when we cross P's, provider to patient to public health to payer, right? When crossed from one P to another, this stuff gets a, a higher degree of importance and it creates an accidental blocking that we don't, mm -hmm. we don't like that word. We shouldn't like that word. We don't want to do it. But there are many reasons why we have to be very careful when we cross these boundaries. And without that kind of, I'm not saying you have to say exactly what it is, but at least some sort of minimum or maximum or general concept of what is expected and normal yeah. would have been greatly appreciated. And no, I, I actually totally agree with you on that point. I I, I have been um, very, I mean, you, you know, even before ONC, right? I did that huge work on patient matching and just side note, I was like, all right, that was 2013. And it was just in the last year that we got the U.S project implementation guide for the address standardization, right? Which was a recommendation way back in 2013. And, and our buddy, Ben Moscovich has been like pushing for for years, right? So like the wheels grind slowly. Um, but I tend to agree with you in that. I, I don't think you, I don't think you set a standard the same way you do like fire R4, right? But there's definitively at a minimum stuff you could do 
to be able to test products. So I at least know how well I'm performing or the network knows how well it's performing. And in the context of like Tefka, I feel like there's a missed opportunity there around, you know, trying to force QHIN, not force, but make sure that QHINs are performing to a particular standard, especially if you're gonna allow for decentralized infrastructure, right? Like, I mean, yep. we just don't know what that impact is. So so I, I tend to agree with you. I feel like there could be a lot more that they do, even if it was just, I, you know, I, I'm trying to remember the reporting metrics that the QHINs have to do. I don't think the match rates were in there. Or, you know, Sean Grannis's favorite, right? Like specificity and sensitivity. I, I don't think that those were in the list of things to report. And that, that seems like something minimum they could do at least initially. Yeah, agreed. And I think the where it really hits home and you kind of see where the friction hits is, as you mentioned, exchange purposes, SOP is not in there, but we know that there are six defined purposes expected to eventually get worked into Tefka. And we know from supporting documentation, the user's guide, as well as you know, other conversations with ONC that the expected required purposes to start at the top and flow all the way down is treatment provider to provider exchange and what they're calling individual access service and we usually call patient access or request. Um, so provider to patient. And that matching logic is actually more important as we expand the use cases because the trust boundaries are very different. Again, crossing those P's. And I think it's going to cause a fair amount of distrust when some things work according to a person, a, a, a human being uh, patient, work differently across different endpoints. They don't understand why. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's the problem. And some people are going to get yelled at who think they're doing the right thing. And they might be doing the right thing. But, you know, it's a standard market inefficiency problem, right? When every agency or everything connected is acting efficiently for themselves, but the market isn't working right. And I'm a little concerned, actually I wouldn't say a lot, I'm a lot concerned that we're about to hit there on the IIS side um, and cause more confusion than we probably needed to do because we could have done more there. Yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, everybody's sort of creating their own plans and actions. And it sort of takes me back to your example of the duck where everyone looks calm and collected on the surface, but then everyone just beneath the surface are, are planning, acting, creating strategies around how they're going to serve themselves going into this. Um, but to your point about the patient experience beyond or crossing different chasms of, of where care may be delivered, it's going to be varied and different. Um, so I'd love to know what, from your perspective on, on Commonwealth side, what are your plans around Tefka? Maybe what kinds of things are you all doing beneath the surface that you might be willing to share with us today here as well? Well, the good news is, you know, the original QHIN model concept uh, looked very much the way Commonwell looks in the first place, right? It's it's practically designed for the way we operate, right? The but some of the things I mentioned, and, and I'll pull the IS thing back in again. That's one of the SOPs that's missing, right? It's it's mentioned in there, and we've had individual access service rights within Commonwealth since 2016. And you know, I've given a bunch of speeches where I'm not going to say embarrassed isn't the right word, but a little bit disappointed in our ability to push out that use case, right? And I think part of it is we don't know what the right way to match the stuff is safely for the providers that are connected to our network and for the patients that access that stuff. It's not just the providers. You don't want your data going to the wrong person because that could be an accidental disaster. 
Mm-hmm. Right. If I if I got Genevieve's data in, in a data stream, I kind of know this market. I'll be mad about it. I'll be upset that someone's healthcare technology isn't working right and I shouldn't have this data. But I'm going to delete it, yell at the provider for giving it to me. They'll ignore it, whatever happens from there. But I know what to do. It's the average person doesn't know what to do with this stuff and doesn't know how sensitive it really is. Um, you know, you talk about things like you're know, shredding your phone bills, whatever. This is well beyond that of what you need to protect for your future. And it can cause damage for decades if it's done incorrectly. So, you know, to build that trust, it would have been nice to have a, a good minimum bar, kind of a, a good maximum bar. Don't go beyond this. You know, Genevieve kind of gave that example of you can't keep asking for more and more stuff, blood types, sample, have you had your COVID test? You know, you can't keep asking for an infinite amount of things before you finally say yes, because that's untenable too. So I kind of wish you, you know, so we're, we Commonwealth expected and still expects to be in the first wave of QHANs. I think we're there. Um, the, only, the only thing I'll caveat that with is we really do need to see some of those SOPs to make sure that we're not biting off something that we didn't mm-hmm. realize wasn't what we thought it was. And you know, the common agreement is a great starting point. It's from, and Genevieve knows this well and other people have no policy. You have to dig through the, the fine print of the policy and make sure that section 12.1.2 referencing document three doesn't all of a sudden upend everything you thought yeah. that it was. And we yeah. need to go through that crawl when we get it. Yeah, and some of the things um, I think that were in the common agreement in previous iterations, it looks like they're getting moved into SOPs, which I think makes sense because I'm assuming it's so that they can be updated more frequently since it's easier to update SOPs. But I agree with you. I think there's some terms and conditions that I was surprised weren't in the common agreement, right? Because, you know, easy on the individual access, easy example, like the requirements for level of identity proofing, right, used to be in the common agreement. I'm assuming that that's going to be over in the security and privacy SOPs, right? So there's some stuff that's gotten moved around. So I think that makes sense. You're listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. We're enabling a better, more efficient healthcare system, Whether you need to improve operational efficiency, optimize financial performance, or enhance the consumer experience, we offer the industry insight and innovative technology to help you meet your objectives. Learn more at changehealthcare.com. But our favorite thing to do in health IT, right, is gossip and speculate. (laughs) So... So who, uh, so who do we think, you know, certainly there's like some groups who've announced they're going to be QHIMS, right? And some who've said that they won't be. Like, so care quality, you know, has said very clearly, we're not going to be a QHIM. We see ourselves more in the governance sphere, which makes sense for the model that they've created. Um, and then I know, you know, like Health Gorilla has very publicly stated that they will be a QHIM. You stated Commonwealth will be. So like, who else do you uh, speculate we should place some bets <laughs> on yeah. who will be. <laughs> well, I mean, there's there's of course uh, my hen, which launched a thing called USQ hen. So hopefully, oh, did they? Already... Oh, I missed that. I have to look at that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The, their first focus was on uh, working on the market for ADTs across ADT systems, right? So, yeah. you know, to kind of create that almost like Tefka like thing for ADTs. But they did make their name USQ hen. So hopefully that means that that's their intent. That's a bold statement. I wonder if they like put a trademark on that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the, the one that people, you know, e-health exchange is very likely, um, yeah. you know, unlike care quality, part of the reason why care quality can't do it, as some of the people listening to this know and others don't, is they don't really have an infrastructure, right? So yep. they, they'd, have, they'd have a tough time passing their own onboarding standard 
of having you know 12 or 24 months of experience doing this stuff they're like well we've experienced telling other people how to do it well um we're almost consultants and isn't that how you always get to like the vp level in a company because i've uh, i've experienced telling other people <laughs> i've got flashbacks to watching office space and cracking up on that. it's, it's uh, very true yeah. your promotion material mm-hmm. but um so you know then there's us uh health exchange and then i think it's really you know, which HIEs think they have the skill? Uh, you know, there was like, there's some consortias that came together. Yeah. Um, Sheik has gone kind of back and forth, but they also don't have infrastructure. They have a set yeah. of standards for a patient center medical home, but you know, that's a data home, I guess. Sorry, if you want to, I, I got the term wrong, but uh, they don't really have it by nature. Now they could use an underlying technology that could prove that they could buy a commercial, they could Go to Health Gorilla, for example, and you know, kind of sub out it and whatever they want to do, or us. Um, I think the real one people are trying to figure out right now is which will be vendor-led Q hands, right? Because that's not yeah. not disallowed. Um, for you know, we've seen a lot of activity on calls from Epic. Um, that's for whether they're going to be acute or not remains to be seen. Yeah, so I was I curious whether they would turn care everywhere into their Q hand. Yeah, you know, it's they, they have this scale and capability to do it. They have an underlying basic MPI, or it could be actually much, much more than basic. I just know it functionally. I've seen from the patient experience side that I know it exists. Because mm-hmm. uh, I know um, if you're if you use my chart, I can hop across epic sites and it gives me suggestions of where I might be. So that requires some level of centralization for that to occur. Um, but you know, they're more client server in the world, right? These are individual installs. So they, they may take what I call the fan in method of XCPD, where they ping all their individual sites and get responses versus mm-hmm. being RLS driven, which is probably fine. Uh, but there's a, I think the real, the real question is all the, you know, care quality and combo created scale to get this stuff to work. And it really wasn't until care quality and combo connected up, even though care quality is not a network and even the leaders over there remind me never to say that it's a framework. But we, when we connected the standards and the frameworks together, you know, adoption spiked. Like it was, it is the hikey stick moment. It's three months after that happened. Yeah. And um, you know, so you take some of the vendors are over there that don't have a natural queue in to go to, and you wonder what they're going to do. You know, it's yeah. Uh, I mean, I've I've wondered. You know, Veronobum right is an excellent example. They've got all scripts next gen practice fusion right, like all that data together. And so I've I've speculated like. Maybe that would be your cue him because you've already got a bunch of the structure in place, although not all of it. Yeah, I, I think that's the question. And then certainly, you know, I'm anxiously awaiting levers <laughs> from the feds, whether it's CMS or ONC around participation, as you can imagine, I had some of those already written when I was serving and just we weren't we weren't allowed to do them <laughs> at the yeah. time. But but as, as if there end up being levers put in place, I think it, it will be a little bit of a gold rush kind of moment for those vendors, I would think. Yeah, it's funny you say that, because I was actually the other day going through Tefka, because uh, this seems to be all I do in my free time. Um, and I, I don't have a lot of free time, so it's, it's f- filled with Tefka whenever I'm doing anything. And, um, you know, you think of carrots and sticks, like, you know, kind of the, the, the dual side of the incentives. And there are, there are times when I, I feel bad about this, but I look at Tefka and I go, look, we already have a lot of exchange going provider to provider, right? And with care quality and Commonwealth, probably two thirds of the country, right? We have more on the vendor side, but some vendors aren't fully adopted yet. So it's probably about somewhere around two thirds. 
that's pretty good. And we just keep chipping away and getting closer and closer. We'll probably get to, we'd probably get to 95% in the next five years without TEF, to be perfectly honest, um, just on general momentum, which I think is pretty good. So unfortunately, some of the additional stuff, you have to wonder if there are other QHIN-like entities that think that it's, a, that it's a stick, right? If I was going to get there anyway, what am I adding that, that is just creating extra work to do versus you know, improving what, what I can do? So yes, I'm interested in kind of those, you mentioned the CMS lever and the like, but interestingly, we've totally dropped the conversation about information blocking and TEFCA linkage, right? That was a big conversation at the beginning. So if I join TEFCA, and participate fully, can I get a little bit of um, guidance on my information blocking pass, for lack of a better term? Yeah, no, uh, I would agree. I, and I will say my stance on that historically was, it makes sense for there to be a pass so long as responses are required for the range of exchange purposes, right? Because it, you shouldn't get a pass for joining a network if you never shared the data, right? Like, you're still just information blocking, but under the guise of not doing it, right? And so that tended to be where I stood is you really shouldn't get a pass unless it's reciprocal requirements. And so you know the data is actually getting shared if someone's asking for it. Now, anyway, yeah, fair point. I and I think, Paul, I just was talking to you about this a little bit ago. Um, you know, you can't make providers and organizations ask for the data, right? Like you can make them have to respond, but from a participation perspective and a patient experience perspective, you can't really make them participate. And, you know, the example I give is the, and I won't name the organization because that's not fair, um, but I recently moved to a new state and have gone to a new provider and they were under a ransomware attack last year for months, it sounds like. And so their new policy is we will, there's no electronic data access at all um, for however long that's gonna be, right? It includes emails, but also just even accessing like medication history or data from Commonwealth where they could have pulled my medical history from because my docs are in it. So I, I do, I, I'm with you in that, like it's, um, I, I think that there's still room for a nice linkage with information blocking. I mean, there's another proposed rule that's we're waiting for that was in the um, the quarterly. Uh, I always forget the name of this. It's the thing they put out quarterly where they tell you what's coming. Um, the federal, it's not the register. It's like the uh, the federal. I can't even think of the word. But anyways, policy wonks who are listening to this are going to make fun of me, which is cool. Um, but we, they've indicated that there's going to be a proposed rule that will make modifications to information blocking slash information sharing, whatever you want to call it now. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious to see like if that's where some of the linkage might come into play. And to your point, not a safe harbor necessarily, but at least some level of protection for folks, which, which would be a good way to like get people to participate. Sure. Yeah, agreed. And I, I don't, I, again, I don't, I, I agree with you on it's not a full on pass, right? You can still do bad things and make it look like you're doing stuff. Um, but there's some components of information blocking kind of like, okay, this one, what this part won't apply if you're doing this because they're you're clearly showing the exact opposite of blocking. Um, yeah. And it could be in guidance documents, et cetera. It could be the OIG giving guidance on what they're gonna not look at. You know, there are ways to do this without even making it legislative or having to have actual policy you just say, you know, we're looking for X, Y, and Z. If we see A or B, that's indication that X, Y, or Z isn't happening, right? And then that just calms the lawyers down so we can focus on doing some of the HIT stuff as opposed to worrying about 
what's in our BAAs, what's in, you know, what's our policy structure, you know, when are we done? You know, this is this is preparing for information blocking. There's been no major onslaught of of infractions yet. And it's mm -hmm. kind of like preparing for a hurricane right now. It's right, you know, how much how much do you over prepare? And then after a passage, you go, I did it right or I over prepared for it. And there's right now there's not a gauge for what that first hurricane is going to feel like. So we don't know. Yeah, yeah I think you're, we're sort of dancing all around this at multi different levels. I'd love to know from your opinion, based on the TEFCA that was issued out, you know, a few days ago, almost now, what are the potential impacts that we'll see here in the near term? And then maybe beyond that, what are sort of the future implications um, for those as well, from your opinion? Well, I, I know at the very least, uh, we're having a lot of discussions on IAS, um, how to improve that. Because, you know, truth be known, and for those who are entering this for some random reason, found this podcast because their friend said, this Genevieve person is funny. Uh, and is <laughs> I try, you know. <laughs> you know, I think it's important to know that the vendors and the providers, in most cases, and you know, there's always a couple of bad Apple examples, do not have an intent to block data to patients, right? They just honestly don't know how to do it the right way. And mm -hmm. part of it is, I can't even tell what the right way is, right? It requires a, this requires, you know, it requires a village, it requires a community to figure out what's the way that we think is safe enough, engages patients and allows them to be part of both their care delivery network and the safety and quality of their data for future stuff. I went to a doctor yesterday, pulled up my record and it says I got an HPV vaccination. I did not oh, have a single shot in my arm yesterday. How is that in my record? I have no idea. Age range for that, Paul. No offense. <laughs> but, but it's in my record, right? So yeah. how'd that get there? And so now, you know, Genevieve and a lot of other people hopefully know, I have a right to, to request a correction to my record. Interesting enough, they don't have to accept it if they put a thing in saying why well, they didn't accept my correction of someone said, no, no, we really did give them that shot. I assure you, I have no, no mark on my arm indicating I had a shot yesterday, but it's in my record and it's going to sit there forever unless I act on it. And the problem with not doing IAS in a concerted way that makes it easier for us to see this data is that most people don't have access to their record, mm -hmm. don't know it's there. And that thing later on down the line, there could be something that finds that this HPV vaccine is dangerous. There could be some contraindication or some other thing. And they won't give me X, Y, or Z drug because some clinical decision support is going to say, if you've had this, you can't have this super drug for X condition you must use the lesser one because it has a kidney failure problem. But I never had HPV vaccination in the first place. And it's a benign thing. It's not, that's not the example that's gonna sink us all, but that's the kind of problems. If someone can see their data quickly and catch it and you make it easy to correct and jump into your record, then who else is more interested in my healthcare than me? Give me my data, I'll make the phone call and correct it and explain the process. I think that's part of the problem right now. We're making it really hard for us to engage in our in our record to help our future care delivery. And yeah. that, that hurts us all. But I think you brought it back to like the biggest issue, right? And Arian Malik, who is a change healthcare uh, as well, and we all know and love in the industry, you know, he just tweeted about this yesterday, I think it was, that, you know, there aren't technical barriers, right, for the most part. And I agree with him, right? There's like, like, let's be clear, patient matching is a bit of a technical barrier for the majority of the population, it's not right. Like there's some that it is, and there's always that sliver, but, but the barriers are not particularly technical in nature. They are policy. And at the root of it is trust. Right. And I think, 
I think Paul's an excellent point is that particularly when you think about individual access, like, you know, there's sort of two layers of trust issues that, that exist. It's, I don't trust these new players in the market who are going to come to the table and, and suck up this data and we don't know what they're going to do with it. And, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Stuff that's valid concerns. It's not invalid. Um, and then, you know, the second layer of trust is still the paternalism that we still have in medicine. That's just there, right? Like who, who of us in this industry who've worked with physicians have not had a physician say to us, why would I give a patient their data? That, that's not like, they don't need that. That's our data. Um, and, and so I think there's those two layers and, and the whole, you know, one of the main goals of TEFCA, right? Trusted exchange framework. Part of the goal is if we all agree to the same set of terms, um, then I'm just going to trust that you are following those same terms, right? Like I, I have to like release the, I always must verify everything and trust that you're following the same terms. And I, I would say I, I was particularly happy to see that um, individual access service providers are going to be held to the same standards um, and HIPAA requirements as everyone else, because I think that that helps build a lot of that trust. But it's even, even away from individual access, right? Payment and operations, same thing. I don't trust what the payer is going to do with that data. And it could come back to bite me that I gave them that data and therefore I don't want to give that data, right? And I, you know, I, I would say personal happy path based on the blood, sweat and tears I put into Tefka um, is that it really pushes the envelope on the non-treatment use cases, right? Because I, I agree, I think on treatment, we're doing relatively well, right? Like my previous physician, would get my notes from the emergency room like immediately after I went, right? Called me up after I fell down the stairs and had to get x-rays. Um, not true in my current case, but that being said, treatment is I think working really well. It's those other use cases that require significantly more trust that it, it's just not functioning, right? And, and I say that as someone who's run some of these use cases in the last two years, like it's just not functioning, right? At, like. And I think we should just yep. all admit that and not pretend like everything's okay. <laughs> yeah, I saw, <laughs> I saw like I saw Malik's tweets uh, as well on this, and yeah. I agree to to some extent, right? It's not technical, although like you know we we exist in, amongst enough policy wonks that we can argue what technical is, um, and get through a whole definition of battle and pull out dictionaries. Um, but there are there are uh, usage issues which you can't solve by fire or by tefka or by xca like someone's got to build the front end like you you can get in a religious war as to whether gmail is better than hotmail and outlook right because yeah. and they're completely different interfaces on the back end exact same protocol right the mail protocol works across unix servers windows all these things and you differentiate a lot at the front end. Some products do make it very difficult for a provider to find that button mm -hmm. or to incorporate that data. And some make it also very difficult to turn on sharing. And I think information blocking was attacking that don't make it difficult to turn on the sharing, but it doesn't require necessarily to do a good job of that final, as Scott Stewart say, that final inch, making sure that they see the screen and that they hit the button. Yeah, no, I yeah. think it's fair. I mean, I don't know how you regulate that last part, honestly, you just like, I mean, you can't, right? You you regulate to the point you can, and then you hope people are good actors, right? Although other industry has sort of demonstrated that it's not full of good actors. So. And they find value in using it. They click the button because it's worth their time. 
Yeah, no, I think that last one is important, right? And I, you know, I've talked about this with with folks about notifications, right? I mean, with with the new rules that have come out around alerts from the hospital, like I would not want to be a physician receiving alerts for every single one of my patients who has gone to the hospital, right? Because sometimes I don't need to do any follow-up, right? There's there's nothing that needs to be done and yet I'm getting pinged with a message. Um, and I think that all comes back to if you can get the data moving, then you have to be smarter about how you present the data and filter through it. And like, we're, you know, we're not to that last mile yet because we're, we're still in some, in many cases, just trying to get the data moving still. Yeah. I think you guys sort of nailed it on the head when we talked about the concept of trust and being sort of the elephant in the room. I think at some point, Genevieve will have to change this podcast just to be focusing on trust because it seems to be the common denominator as Paul laid it out. It's, it's such an impactful thing. Um, so Paul, thank you so much uh, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to meet with us today. Um, this has been extremely insightful and enlightening, especially for those of us who aren't sort of living and breathing all of the, the changes that are coming out of the regulatory world uh, every day. And I appreciate the fact that you take time out of your, your, your free time to try to keep apprised of all of these things as they evolve um, over time. So. For our listeners, don't forget to check the show notes um, for links and resources or for contact information related to today's show. Um, Paul, again, thank you so much for meeting with us. And Genevieve, as always, it's, it's so great to hear some of your insights coming from sort of the policy realm. Um, also, for, for listeners, please stay tuned to the Change Healthcare podcast for more shows covering the healthcare IT topics that you care about. Um, for more information on interoperability and other healthcare IT-related topics, please don't hesitate to visit changehealthcare.com. Uh, I'm Robert Connolly. I'm Genevieve Morris. <laughs> <laughs> and we hope Paul, that you all have the, the best rest of your day. And again, Paul, thank you so much. Thank you. appreciate it. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. We're focused on accelerating the transformation of the healthcare system through the power of the Change Healthcare Platform. We provide data and analytics-driven solutions to improve clinical, financial, administrative, and patient engagement outcomes in the U.S. healthcare system. Learn more at changehealthcare.com.